Here at Country Roads Magazine, for 40 years with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Louisiana and Mississippi, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. Our latest project is Detours, a podcast where we'll dive deeper into some favorite stories from our recent issues and crack open the door to our editorial meeting, letting you, dear listener, in on our process of choosing and refining the stories that land in country roads. Think of it as a friendly audio companion to your monthly magazine, a chance to really hear the voices of the artists, chefs, farmers, musicians, designers, and other culture bearers who make our vibrantly unique region like no other. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. Hello, everyone. Jordan and Alex here today with a person we would describe as nothing less than a Louisiana icon and really an American icon, too. Nick Spitzer came to Louisiana in the 1970s to conduct fieldwork in rural Creole communities, and by 1978, he had founded the Louisiana Folklife Program. Through his work as state folklorist, he also spurred much of the programs and research that have helped to articulate Louisiana culture today. On a national level, he's curated programs at the Festival of American Folklife, been a commentator on culture for NPR's All Things Considered, and he served as the Senior Folklife Specialist at the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, among many, many, many other projects central to American culture. Today, he is best known as the host of Public Radio's American Roots program, which is devoted to vernacular music and culture delivered through interviews with musicians ranging from small-town Zydeco performers to singers of some of our country's biggest hits. He's also a professor of anthropology at Tulane University, and he currently lives in the city with his wife and their son. His work across all of these venues has garnered many, many awards, the latest of which he received earlier this year when he was named a National Heritage Fellow with the National Endowment for the Arts. When we spoke with him for this podcast episode in September, he was literally getting ready to board the plane for Washington for the ceremony. For our September 2023 40th anniversary issue, in which we celebrated the work of individuals who have been at the forefront of Louisiana culture for four decades or more. Contributor John Wirt wrote a wonderful profile on Nick and his accomplishments, especially in the realm of radio storytelling. For today's episode, we were excited to have both Nick and John to discuss everything from the art of interviewing to the ways music can act as an avenue to understanding American culture in all of its diversity and all of its wonder. I want to start with a question for John, actually, um, in the context of this piece that we just published, as we're doing right now, we recognize that interviewing a master interviewer like Nick could be intimidating or a challenge. And we were so pleased with how your story came out. So how did you approach or prepare for your interview with Nick for this story? As best I remember, that's my third uh, story and interview with Nick. So I'm I'm so familiar with him, and I I've seen him in person, and we've talked, and I've seen him here and there. So uh, I, I I didn't feel intimidated by Nick, despite all of his amazing accomplishments. He's got he's got a million stories, and he's told a million stories. So there's no problem getting Nick to talk. He's not shy. Well, that's good to hear that he made it easy on you. Well, we so appreciate both of y'all being on today. Um, and we wanted to ask you, Nick, I mean, as someone who obviously has infinite experience on the other side of the microphone conducting interviews, but now has quite a bit of experience on the other side, too, especially as you continue to, to get these awards and, and, and these experiences like this. How does it feel to be on the other side and to kind of uh, be, be interviewed about your own life and career? Well, it's made me have to sort of think about it and go over it and go through all the different times and places I've been in. Uh, you know, in my family, my friends, my teachers, uh, choices I made and maybe didn't even realize the implications of them at the time. So, you know, and I, occasionally I turn to the CV and say, oh, that happened in that year, you know. 
uh, you accumulate 72 years and you start looking at the paper and say, okay, we were doing that then. But um, more than that, I think it's just caused me to reflect uh, in all kinds of ways. You know, we don't do this work to get awards. I mean, I'm motivated by aesthetics, social justice, uh, the enjoyment of working with people, the cultural conversation, as I call it. You know, what was I doing 50 years ago in college? I was studying uh, folklore, anthropology, and I was on the college radio station. What am I doing 50 years later? Basically the same thing. <laughs> Production values may be a little better, uh, you know, a little more knowledge base. But obviously, without realizing it, um, I found what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, late 60s, get in college. I started in the Wharton School at Penn. My parents' vision for me was, uh, you, know, uh, be, you know, become a business person and then uh, after you've made a living, then you can do all your creative stuff. Because they did recognize my creativity, especially my mother. But within a semester, I just said, you know, I like macroeconomics. I'm intrigued by a lot of this. But the idea of studying insurance and statistics, and I said, yeah, it's just not me. I'm going out to jazz clubs. I'm here at the college radio station listening to the music of the world. I'm discovering Zydeco on the shelves. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not that person. And of course, this was a realization a lot of people had, I think, in that period. I think people are having that realization again as the economy is so very different than it was when I was in that age bracket. So so I've had to really think through these things, but there was no one decisive moment where I said, oh, I will be you know, Nick Spitzer, the folklorist on the radio. I, I just kept going in a lot of different places and I ended up on radio. You know, I, I was kidding, John. I, you know, my, once I got out of college radio, uh, the first thing I did, uh, you know, you, you graduate in anthropology, and what can you do? I'd already been a lifeguard. I'd already cut grass you know, in a dishwater, washer, and a waiter, but I could do radio. And at that time, Stereo FM was emerging. I mean, funny to see it as new technology, but it was at that time. And so these old stations that played easy listening or classical were going away. I didn't mind the easy listening going. I actually really loved classical. But I was on a station doing drive in Philadelphia for a very large audience, and suddenly I was thrown into that. I always say it was underground radio. And, you know, I talked like that, got near the microphone. You know, and I got a, I got a chance to do interviews with everyone from Bette Miller to wow. the Grateful Dead um, coming through, you know. Well, all the people who had shows the night before didn't wake up till, you know, 10 or 11. So I was I was the guy on from, uh, when, what was I was on from 2 to 6. So... <laughs> That was their after or late breakfast lunch stop if they were promoting. You know, I got John Prine and Linda. Wow. I mean, I, I I think I sometimes think back about these lists of people. And that gave me the confidence to do interviews live and on the radio to just have those conversations and, and to put the artists at ease um, became that helped me be at ease and help them. Um, there were not, you know, contentious interviews. Um, they were fun, you know, and I, I always felt strongly that, and I still do, uh, if we have artists on, we're not there to reveal their, their innermost secrets or their traumas and troubles, but instead to talk about what's genuinely great about their work, their songwriting, their performance. And, but if they're comfortable, they will talk about their trials and troubles if they watch it. Uh, live, you can't edit it um, unless, you know, a forbidden word is said the seven second delay button but you know in post-production you know we're judicious in making sure that everybody looks and to the extent you can appear on radio sounds great and if they want to talk about how much they still love bob dylan go ahead joan baez talk about it and and it's you know it's just a human memory and i th i think the 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 authenticity of people's feelings uh, it's extremely important, uh, and so you just roll with it. And that doesn't mean you use all of anything, but anyway, that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> John was right. I do have a lot of stories, but I, it has been weird, I'll just say, adjusting to being asked the questions. And I'm glad I've had a few months to get used to it because, you know, I'm happy being unseen. I to turned down Nightline, I turned down. Uh, Norman Lear productions. I turned down I, the one, only television I really wanted to do was um, 
was with an ABC program, um, but then the host who I'd been working with uh, passed away. So I, I didn't like Bright Lights, Big City. That was Peter Jennings uh, coming into the intimate conversations I was having with people where I, that suddenly is a crew of 15 and the, the lights are bright in, the, in a quiet little house. Uh, the good thing about radio is I don't have to be seen. It's just about voice to voice, brain to brain, heart to heart, whatever you want to say. And then you can play the music. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of work, but it's also very pleasurable to do the work. Uh, you want to be on the crazy media schedule of television, feel always exposed to the, you know, exigencies of production. Anyway, enough on that. You, you, what you just did was amazing. You answered like so many of our questions actually, but uh, one of them, and you, you, I wanted to ask you about um, strategies for interviewing, you know, that you've developed over the years and you, you just touched on several of them, but I thought, and I'd also like to ask John that as well. Both of you have been interviewing people for a different context for a long time. And Alex and I do a lot of interviews as young journalists and editors, and uh, would love to hear how you guys, you know, kind of bring out these great stories or, or make people comfortable in these conversations. How do you, um, how do you foster that sort of environment? I like to do a lot of research and read everything I can find and and find the best stories that have been written before. Um, and I, I'm finding fewer and fewer good stories because there were there are fewer newspapers, there were fewer music journalists, and I'm finding fewer good stories. I'm finding mediocre, poor stories. And then you'll come find John Perellis at the New York Times, and you say, <laughs> that's the best story. So um, I, so I do like to do a lot of research, but I really like what Nick said about making the interviewee welcome and comfortable. And I've had, I've had people, I, I might have a natural ability for that, because people like Tula Clark, the great 60s pop singer downtown, I know a place. She said, I like talking to you. So there was something, I maybe innate in me, that people wanted to talk to me. And even if I don't want them to talk. <laughs> it goes both <laughs> ways, right? But, but Nick made a great point about making people welcome. And he's talked to so many people. And it, it, it's an intimate conversation. It's comfortable. It's warm. And I think because he cares. I think so. Yeah. And that word keeps coming up over and over again, intimate. And and you said that uh, in John's story as well, Nick, that radio is just such an intimate medium, um, and especially those kind of audio interviews. And and warm as well is a great word. And, and I think, um, you know, Nick, you talking about sort of some of your motivations and how you really are passion driven, driven by social justice, all of these things um, that really do kind of allow people to, to sort of experience that human to human connection and that warmth and really makes them want to open up. Um, no matter who they are. And you've already mentioned uh, Bette Midler, Joe Baez, you know, some of the folks you've interviewed. I know that the list just goes on and on and on, but we did want to ask you, Nick, if you wouldn't mind just, just running through for our listeners some of the folks that you've interviewed. I mean, who are some of, not necessarily the most impressive, but the most interesting or some of the interviews that you've enjoyed the most throughout your well, career. Well, I have to say something about, you know, the, the intimacy and kindness fact. You have to remember when I worked in rock radio in the 70s, you know, if it was a promoter of some British hair band, like Foghat, um, sometimes I wouldn't even know they were coming, and then they come in the studio screaming. <laughs> you have to adapt to that, and you always say, well, I think Foghat is here. You know, you don't, because yeah, you're also dealing with your listeners. That's the difference between the writing situation, is you're actually dealing on live radio. Um so there's that function of the listeners are listening in. And even when we do interviews for Roots, I think a lot of people, they, don't, they, they know it's not live on air, but they're, they're, they're thinking live. Um, and so at one level, they're guarded, and another level, they're excited. Uh, when I was in Austin working on a hippie country station, really actually called K-O-K-E, Coke FM, Goat Roper Radio, and Willie Nelson had arrived back in Austin after years in Nashville feeling repressed. He and uh, he and Waylon Jennings and Commander Cody would show up at the station at midnight, uh, and I was the only non-Texan on the staff, and the other guys didn't want to work Saturday nights. 
for me, I was in grad wow. school, like, hey, I'm back on the radio. This is fun playing, you know, you know, redneck rock, hippie country. They called it, they didn't call it alt country like now. Um, but, you know, so I got to meet those guys. And, you know, I mean, Commander Cody came in, just sat down while I was spinning a record and popped his boot up on the whole place where the turntables were. And I saw the tone <laughs> arm go, boom. Yeah. You know, the apogee of its arc, I just faded it down and I said, Commander Cody is here. <laughs> yeah. So I've had those kinds of experiences. But for Roots, uh, I, I, there's an intervening reality that I worked for a lot of years as the state folklorist and before that working in a lot of Afro-Creole communities. So my interviews, to the extent I was able to learn Afro-French, Creole, Cajun French, um, were much more like at home and hanging out and a little more ethnographic and, you know, just recording for a couple of days at a time and finding out and talking and them understanding more what I was looking for and me better understanding what was could be expressed in words and what was simply the acts of everyday life of gardening and going to church and school and mama's up early and all, all the things that, that ran the household. I think for Roots, um, you know, obviously people know there'll be an outcome. And like John, I try and read everything I can. And there are sources that I really like. And sometimes I have student workers looking for them. And if I find somebody that really is good at searching, I try and keep them on that. But it, it takes a lot of time. And we don't have a lot of time when you're knocking out a show every week. Uh, so we have to both uh, go in depth, but go quickly a lot of the time. Um, but when the moment finally comes, you know, I am I may be a little nervous, but but I feel like that's good. The energy is like, come on, let's have the conversation. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm surprised that, you know, inter interviewing uh, an old uh, home and Native American man from uh, uh, down in Dulac who was... Uh, also a healer and a deep believer in werewolves and a carver um, and many other things to me was a really, you know, enriching interview. And it was half in French, half in English as he saw fit. Um, you know, that's one kind of interview. Uh, if you're on a phone line with Santana, it's a different kind of interview. Uh, and I had Santana, you know, has really uh, moved himself much more towards um, African percussion than ever before. You know, and he's older and he has that rock legacy. I mean, I saw Santana at Woodstock and I mentioned that to him. But wow, here's what got Santana ready to talk. I had met his father, who was a mariachi, his father wearing a powder blue mariachi suit uh, with cowboy boots and the big uh, sombrero and, you know, beautiful metal work up here as, and all this sort of stuff. And I met him at a folk festival in San Francisco. And now here's Santana saying how his father wanted him to play violin with him as they used to do in the streets of Tijuana to make money for the family before they moved to California, before Santana got hip to American rhythm and blues to, to BB King and a Chuck Berry and to little Richard. Um, I love the Rolling Stones. I mean, just on and on. And so I was there as a witness that I could bring up that I spoke to his dad and I described the outfit just like I described it to you. And he said, Oh yeah, the powder blue suit. <laughs> And his father had hectored him. And, and, and so, you know, he, he didn't want, Santana didn't want to keep playing with his father, even though he loved the music, and still does. But he took a job as a dishwasher, and he talked about dishwashing, and then he made a decision. He told his mother and father, if I'm going to make it in music, I, I can't have this day job. I've got to practice every day, all the time. And he was now listening to all this blues and beginning to do blues with, in Spanish and playing Oye Como Bon, following Tito Puente. But I mean, it emerges as a narrative where he's really telling a life history that he's comfortable talking about because I've introduced his father and then his father, who I lionized, he did too. But, you know, we all have to separate from our parents. And I think at some level it was harder for him because he was a moneymaker and his father wanted him to be singing in Spanish and doing the tradition. And, and I'm a folklorist. I'm a believer in keepers of tradition, but I'm also a believer in mm -hmm. creativity. If you have the tension of tradition and creativity, and that's in the minds and the background of the interview, and you've got somebody like Santana who can totally articulate all that, let him go. And he's great. And it's really more a matter of cutting it to time than asking lots of questions. You just make him comfortable and he talks. So, so they vary a lot. And some people, you know, I've had only maybe two interviews that went really south on me. Um, and 
Yeah, what could I? The, uh, these were characters, and I'll just say one was like Turner. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, really? Uh, but, you know, these, you know, the, but you know, I mean, Roots has got twelve hundred interviews, right. in the, and then I between Smithsonian and NPR and Nightline and all these other things over the years, back to the mid seventies. Um, I calculate I'm probably uh, I'm up around two thousand interviews. I don't I don't have access to all of them, but occasionally I dig old, an old one up. But so the, I guess I'm just saying that the core yes is is exactly what John said in doing the research, but then beyond that, trying to figure out some way in that'll be different than a standard interview of a person that's probably been interviewed many then, times, if they're well known. Yeah, like really finding a way to kind of spark the chemistry and like make it feel more like a conversation than than something, some formal job that they have to do. I feel like that's that's the, what stands out about a great interviewer. I think it sounds more like we're having a conversation. We're just hanging out. Just like right now. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I really do. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, Nick, is in the article that John wrote, you, you kind of touched on your time with um, Dewey Belfa and Evangeline Parrish and as really uh, sparking your journey as a folklorist in particular. I'd love to hear more about that time. I, I don't, I'm actually from Evangeline Parish. Well, you are. Um, and so it's so fascinating to me that that's where you kind of set out. I know you had done obviously lots of work radio, with radio before, but that's where this folklore journey started for you. Um, I'd love to hear about how you ended up there and what the what your perspective of that community was like and what you know drew you so much to that music and those people um that's you continue to talk a lot about creole culture i right yeah. so i'd love to hear more about what's yeah. you know tied you well, to that i can frame it uh you know, the first year i was working in philly uh at mmr i realized that i didn't want to just stay inside well contemporary pop rock even though i like a lot of it and still do um but before that when i was in the college station the big wall of twenty thousand records uh that i helped to categorize and such and i found two records in the caribbean section that i realized oh these people are from louisiana it really should be filed under louisiana or gulf south this is kind of nerdy stuff you know and one of them was the uh record um of boisek ardwan and canary taunton and i listened to it and i said I can't believe this music is in North America. These people, who are these people? And then I had the other record was a Clifton Chenier record, the big Zydeco. So in a sense, I had the continuum of the Afro-Creole Southwest Louisiana into Texas, out to California world encapsulated in two records. And I started playing a lot of that on the rock station. You know, most people really liked, especially the Clifton stuff. Yeah. So so when I when I quit radio and made my what I call Jack Kerouac meets Woody Guthrie trip around the country, <laughs> love that major place I went. You know, I went I went to see Doc Watson in the mountains, and I'd go down to the coast and try to hit every beach from Pens- Pensacola to uh, uh, Dauphin Island, Alabama, and then I go through New Orleans and visit a little. But I had a friend in Lafayette who has been had been doing some field recording. Ron Stanford, he actually made a lovely record. Oh, I know Ron. I uh we did a story on him a couple years ago. He's fantastic and his his photos are amazing. Yeah, he's beautiful. I did that exhibit. Anyway, Ron knew Dewey. Uh, I hadn't met Dewey. Um but you know, the French movement was booming, but there was a po- absolute paucity of people of color in it. And uh the world of the Council for Development in French Louisiana was talking about developing French French everywhere, you know, and they wanted it to be global French. And, and I thought that was a real uh, wrong move of people. Many of them didn't really speak French. They just learned it lately in school to try to make Cajuns and Creoles be something that they weren't. I mean, there was an oral tradition culture. Anyway, uh, I got an introduction to Dewey via Ron and uh, Dewey, Dewey and I got along extremely well. And his, his wife, Hilda and, and Christine, who's now in Bonsoir Catan, little girl, Christine Ball. And so uh, Dewey invited me to live in his outdoor kitchen uh, out, you know, on the Evangeline Highway south of uh, Basile. And the deal was I was going to feed cows and, you know, go through electric fences, make sure they were working. Got shocked a few times. Deliver insurance checks, you know, <laughs> duties as assigned, move furniture, 
and that and for that I got you know uh, breakfast and dinner and a place to sleep. And uh, so I told Dewey, you know, I really would like to work more with the Afro-French people. And he said, oh, Nick, he said, Codafield, they're ignoring them. And I said, I know, I see that, and I love that music. So one day I came home, and I said to him, I saw a sign tonight in kind of this franglais, because the French signs were usually in English, but the little attempted French oral tradition writing. And it said, Ardouin ce soir, Catquin, the Ardouin family tonight at Four Corners. And I went there, and I had met Boisek at, a, at this festival, Mariposa, Canada, uh, where I had only studied Spanish. But he did say to me, Quand tu visites la Louisiane dans le futur, visite nous à la maison. When you come to Louisiana in the future, come see us at the house. I think, who is this guy? He doesn't know me from Adam. It's like I can understand, but I understood <laughs> enough. And so I, I went there, and that was, it, it was Boisek Ardouin, who later got a Heritage Award, and whose house I would later live in. Um, uh, you know, they're playing for an all French, all Cajun audience with his family band. And I said, I said in French to him, you know, I, you told me I should come see you. And he said, oh, and, he, and so I said, yeah, I said, but you're just playing here at a club. Do you ever play at home? And then he told me to come to the afternoon Fado Do at his son's cowboy club. Uh, it, it, it's sort of between, it's called Las Prianois, uh, Black Cyprian's Cove was a free person of color settlement in the 1820s. And uh, it was out between Basile, uh, Mamou, um, and, uh, well, well, that's about where it was. <laughs> and I went there. And, you know, I saw, you know, I saw little children sleeping on pool tables while the band was at 90 dB, you know. And, you know, boys out in the woods drinking beer and, you know, talking about their favorite girlfriends and, then I learned something early too, which is that most of these old traditional dances had a top the widow's table. So all of a sudden I'm dancing with women in their seventies who to me, you know, as a 26 year old, I mean, everyone was kind of laughing at me, but they helped me learn to dance in a crowd. I, you know, waltzes in two steps. Uh, I was seen as somebody that was fitting in because I was being a, a guest was honoring the elders and it just flowed from there. Um, but, you know, that record library he hearing, going to meet the Ardoins or some of the Ardoins up at the Folk Festival and then landing, you know, with Dewey Balfa who helped me. And I consider Dewey Balfa, Boisek Ardoin, Canary Fontenot, and all the many people I interviewed who didn't receive, all of those people received heritage fellowships. Many, many who didn't. And I'm a believer that, you know, there should be millions of heritage fellowships worldwide for anybody that supports culture creativity and continuity but these are the people i worked with and you know they gave me a lot of vision for the ideas of creolization in society rather than one group one people on the land that's why we call it roots r-o-u-t-e-s the notion of emergence uh, you know that doesn't mean we neglect r-o-o-t-s and things people value from the past that they care for and selectively care for because we know there's things in the past that aren't great and we know there's things in the future that might be terrible if we don't act in the present. So it's me that what we're trying for is a humanistic, creolized understanding of the human experience. And I got that from those people. Wow. More than from any college professor, though I love my teachers. Those people and my mother are the people most responsible for me just keeping doing what I've been doing all these years and, you know, moving in wider circles. But Again, no, I don't want to be the head of culture, recreation, and tourism. No, I am not running for governor of Louisiana. I mean, I was actually, things like this were proposed to me. At wow. I said, look, I, 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 I didn't go to Vietnam and I smoked a lot of pot. So to <laughs> 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 the coals, you know, but I said, even then I'm, you don't want a guy from Connecticut to be the governor of Louisiana. That's just a laughable idea. I can help the governor and I do. And uh -huh. the governor wasn't very nice to me. <laughs> you know, these, these are various governors. But but in the end, I think just keeping moving forward with what you value, um, you know, it, it's not it's not a question of should I do this or should I do that? You just find the things that seem like they'll work and try and make them work, whether it's a festival, a museum exhibit, a World's Fair, a book, uh, a radio show, and and see them as the the genres of representation of culture. 
Um, you know, and, and so radio happens to work beautifully. O-R-A-L, tradition, works very well with A-U-R-A-L, the tradition of listening. And in, in a time of people, where people are segregated or separated by ethnicity or class or whatever, you don't have to go to the same bingo parlor to listen to the blues or country music in the same show. And so you can portray an idealized America by having these many voices uh, that affect people at the heart rather than arguing about who's on top, whose history is important, whose history is awful. I think you can hear in the blues some of the awful history, uh, the gospel music, some of the awful history. I think you can hear in all kinds of music also the joy of life. And so that humanizes people in a way that all the seminar arguments in the world won't. And I say that as somebody who believes in teaching and working with students, and I, and I appreciate that. But I, I, I think for me, the radio show has been more valuable um, as having a social, cultural impact. Um, not that I haven't had some brilliant students and, and do, and they go on, but there's a way to reach a wider audience. You know, it's not as big as Nightline. It's not as big as Norman Lear Productions, but it's, it's, I have the absolute freedom to mold it the way I think it ought to be. And it's just a small thing that's just grown and grown on its own merits. Absolutely. And I think that organic approach you've had to it that really clearly is rooted in passion and actually caring about the music and about the artists and wanting to hear and share these stories um, just helps that come across, you know, so clearly. And, uh, and and I know you mentioned that you're originally from Connecticut, Nick, but I think it's very safe to say that you are totally an honorary Louisiana at this point. So if you do want to reconsider that gubernatorial run, you know, <laughs> we, we've got your back. When I was first in Baton Rouge, um, some people said to me, well, how the hell did you get that job as a state folklorist? You're not from here. I said, well, I do speak Spanish and I'm pretty good at French and I might learn Vietnamese, probably not fast. But I said, you know, I'm, I'm trained somewhat to do this, but it's an open terrain. And if you can help me, I wish you would. And occasionally people would make jokes about the damn Yankee, this and that. But I'd say, you have to understand where I came from. Calling somebody a Yankee was praiseworthy. It was like, you worked hard and you're on the And, you know, all the silly, silly histories of, of, of the work ethic in, the, in New England. Um, but, but little by little, I think when they saw what we were doing uh, with state exhibits and uh, the Blues Festival was very helpful in breaking some ice in Baton Rouge. A Mardi Gras Spanish town was, was, you know, introduced a level of irony into discourse in Baton Rouge that really wasn't allowed in a lot of ways, unless you were at LSU or on a campus, that, you know, it, it began to accrue that to people that, you know, I, I was not there to denigrate and I was not there to pontificate. I was there just to have, you know, enjoy the company of so many different kinds of people. And they could do. And I was a little bit more liberated in that sense that I didn't have a particular familial track record and I wasn't known as somebody's boy or some school's grad. Sure. So it liberated me in a lot of ways. And I, when I moved, came, you know, I, I, my first move to Louisiana was to work with the rural Afro-French, then Baton Rouge. So I came in in a peculiar way and I didn't come as a tourist, really. Uh, and then finally, um, I left for Washington for 10 years, Smithsonian two in Santa Fe, and I came back and I wanted to be in New Orleans this time in terms of starting American Roots. And, uh, you know, in New Orleans, people were like, where'd you go to high school? <laughs> I started getting those questions again. And I, I used to joke, I say, you know, sometimes people that are converts to a religion know the religion and more thoroughly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't fully believe, but but it's a good thing to say. But but the, the, the main thing I would say is, well, how many times did you choose to move here to live? Mm -hmm. I said, three times. First in the most rural, arguably impoverished, but incredibly culturally rich and socially kind circumstances. Baton Rouge, um, the battles of state government, learning how to do that work. Uh, and then now to back to New Orleans with the confidence of having done lots of radio, lots of TV, lots of major, you know, institutional work, teaching at UNO where my students were so eclectic. Here's the old retired Jewish tax collector. Here's a 27-year-old African-American, single mother of two. I mean, these were all my class. So I, I realized the diversity of New Orleans through who is at UNO and how to build a common denominator discourse in classes. Um, so everything, again, it's what, you know, John did say that I didn't plan. <laughs> 
I said, yeah, but he was right in one sense. I, you are right, John. I just kept thinking, how would this work? Well, maybe it would work. I, I wasn't plotting to be, you know, anything more than what we're doing. I was just trying to do what I thought would work. And so I'm glad I came back to Louisiana. I'm glad I've lived in rural. I'm glad French. I'm glad I lived in Baton Rouge and worked there. And I'm happy in New Orleans. And I don't get out as much to see my old friends, but a lot of the children and grandchildren of the Creole families that I worked for have written me notes or called me. I've been to more weddings and funerals and baptisms over the years. Sad funerals, unfortunately, some people we lost early to major troubles in their lives. But I think that, um, you know, we're, just, we're all just a product of our life experience. And I've been lucky, honestly. I just think I'm lucky. And I, if you know, people throw around privilege a lot, my family wasn't wealthy. They were very educated, but they weren't wealthy. But they made me seek freedom. And you know, they wanted me in the business school and then, you know, then be like Charles Ives. He sold insurance and then he wrote all of his symphonies <laughs> that you got. Wallace Stevens, the poet. Be like Wallace Stevens. You like the poetry. He, he you know, was uh, insurance too. I'm like, what is this with insurance? <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I accepted where they wanted me to go to school and it was a great place. But like I say, it's 1968 and I'm, I, I can't march to that anymore. I'm be that person. And I go to college reunions and the guys who are what they used to call BMOC, best big man on campus, the basketball players, not a, now a medical doctor star. This or that. And they come up to me and say, boy, I really wish I was doing your show. And I said, the thing is, and I understand that, uh, Jim, but here's the thing. I was doing it when I just loved it as a, you know, a college kid. And I was just doing what I liked. And I didn't envision a payday or I just envisioned getting by enough to live and enjoying what I was doing and the freedom I've had. And I said, and it took me a long time to just do this and build the practice up that I could do it. It wasn't back to John's comment. It wasn't really a plan. So I think that my privilege is to have stood for the freedom to do what I wanted at most of these junctures in life. And, you know, like any person, I've made some mistakes. But I think in general, seizing the, the the privilege of helping people, working with people, elevating the people more than I should, should be elevated, in my opinion. Another good thing about being on the radio, and I can just block <laughs> Hey, don't ever see Um. So anyway, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to go on no, about all this. But once so much... You know, it's such... It's very inspiring, as I think Alex would agree, uh, as like young creative people who are very motivated by storytelling in a, a economy that's not always like it's not it's not an obvious path forward it's, hearing these this from someone who's been doing it as long as you is like just very inspiring and um motivation motivational about you know following following the stories where they take you not overthinking it um Alex, would you are you are you picking up all of that too? <laughs> oh, absolutely! The yeah. fact that from the beginning you've been driven by the passion, by the storytelling, by the people, and uplifting their creativity, yeah. what they're doing, and you've still found the success that you've had, um, even when your motive, you know, is something that's that's not purely financial. And, yeah. uh, and we talk a lot about being lucky, and I have to say, I think Louisiana is very lucky that you've honed in on it and that you've chosen it as your home, um, because as, as Jordan, I know at Country true. Road. Yeah. There's just so much. Cliche, it's a culturally rich place. Exactly. But... You took the words out of my mouth. There's just so much culture, so much diverse, rich culture. Um, and so it's a, it's a lot to unpack. And it's certainly the work sure. of a lot of different people. Um, and and told. John, because I mean, like I do write some, and but to, to write an article and have it flow for an audience, have it embrace key points. I mean, to me, I've done some of that, but I haven't been doing it at that steady pace that he mm -hmm. works. I always see his stuff. And I, I honestly, of all the articles that have been written and there's a bunch of others that have since come out, I think it's the best one in my mind because one, he, you know, <laughs> a little, kind of little jest here and there for me. Um, but, but really also, I think, you know, it encapsulates, you know, all these labors, but puts them in the context of a flow that I, I would probably wouldn't have articulated. Yeah, me. we've been very but, grateful to have John in our in our cast I mean, of I, storytellers for sure. Absolutely, I, mean, I 
Rhodes was around, I think, uh, when I was in Baton Rouge or was nascent. Um, but it's a much, it, it, it's a, it's now a literary uh, magazine with culture at the center. Um, it doesn't feel like it's a tourist promotion. It doesn't feel like anything other than the quality of life questions. And I really like that about it. And I, and I think if that had been the way when I was there, um, I, I would have appreciated it more at that that time. But when I started seeing what y'all were doing, um, I felt, wow, this is this is great. And I, you know, I mean, I we, there was a big feature in the Metro. Uh, I guess it was on Sunday. I don't remember uh, here. And, and I did a bunch of TV things. And, and, and the local New Orleanians, you know, they, they, all of a sudden they jumped up, you know, and started, oh, wow, we love you so much. <laughs> and so it's great. But um, I think John John's piece is beautifully written, and uh, that's the one I sent to my family. Oh, wow. Well, that means so much. Thank you, and John, really fantastic. Job. We agree. You have to give the editor's credit, too, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's dap to go around everywhere here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and thank you for the kind words about the publication as well, Nick. That really means a lot coming from you. We certainly try, and having great writers like John definitely helps us out a lot in that regard. Because we do, we love the way he was able to weave in your career and your accomplishments with your personal life as well, um, and do it so seamlessly. We really yeah, enjoyed it. I'm glad. Yeah, and as a music reporter as well, we we can always count on John to be like on top of um, the scene. I, we so appreciated uh, last year the or was it last year? The blues, one of my favorites ever was the young blues story that you did for us, John. Yeah, the Baton Rouge like, Blues Musician. Yeah. That was in our first music issue. I don't think I've seen that. I need to grab that and check that out. You know, John did an important book on Huey Piano Smith uh, and, you know, uh, a, a mysterious figure. I saw him perform once uh, and uh, I would always wanted to interview him and John had told me that he'd retreated to this life, I guess, in in Beauregard town, was it? Yes. Uh, and and uh, I'd always hoped we'd make a, some kind of connection, and uh, and then it, it just didn't happen. But John John's book is there, and we're we're hoping to find a way to work with some of the existing uh, oral history tapes, um, and and that he did, and I guess others, and, and make you know, create a feature at some point. So I mean, I have a long I have a long list of things I'd like to get on the show, but. You know, and then the more you do of those kinds of things, the more everyone wants something. <laughs> all these record company guys that are growing old, you know, Chess Records, Next Generation, they all want, everyone just wants something. And it's, uh, I'd rather, you know, do something on a, a fallen hero like Huey Smith or, you know, a Native American healer or a rising young Cajun fiddle player, um, honestly, rather than, you know, once again, going back to, dredging up you know rock and roll history um my feeling about a lot of the things that are pushed to me by you know retrospective catalog builders is that i'll just play the records and if somebody really has a lot to say an artist is still alive okay um i you know that said over the years i did interview jerry wexler who i loved and uh, uh john knows jerry wexler was a famous collaborator with ahmed erdogan on um the Atlantic catalog and, you know, working with Aretha Franklin and working with a lot of blues and R and B. Professor Long here. Hey, that's right. Recordings with, with Ahmed er Erdogan and Professor Long here, right here. So, and there were two very different people. I mean, Wexler, you know, he'd introduce himself as freak Jew, Brooklyn, you know, and Ahmed Erdogan was this very courtly, um, Lebanese, I think Lebanese Turkish. Christian. Turkish. Turk. That's right. Turkish. They were Turks. His father was the Turkish ambassador to the U.S., and but but he he made it clear that they were Christians, <laughs> and so you know, and they worked together. And you know, Ahmet was very, like I said, the businessman, very courtly. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, the other gentleman was uh, extremely uh, a little in your face and could get down with things and feisty. And I think the artists really kind of appreciated that. But so they're interesting people, and I got to interview both of them. Um, but it was my initiative to interview them rather than a than a uh, than a pitch of sorts, yeah. And I tend to resist these promotions coming at you, and you know they all find out every friggin' address and every phone number, and mm -hmm. everything just rings constantly. And and I I you know I, I there's a side of me that would might like to pursue it, but you know I I feel like my key job still is to take care 
of the unheard elders or the greats in our lives who don't made- have a PR company. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, as well as getting a backstory on a, on a Santana or a Dolly Parton or a Willie. Yeah. I mean, I look at Willie Nelson as a deep traditionalist and a globalist in one person. Mm-hmm. All comes up with who he grew up with. His father played fiddle. They all listened to the radio. They loved Django Reinhardt, you know, the great um, J- Manouche, uh, French gypsy, as people would say, guitarist. And they heard him on the radio out of Dallas, but they also heard the Texas Playboys and they heard the Texas Playboys doing Django Reinhardt stuff. And so suddenly they're tracing themselves to both Django Reinhardt and old time country. Meanwhile, out in what Willie calls the Cotton Patch, there's people that sing in Czech. His first band was of the Czech band, a lot of Czechs in Central Texas. You know, there's African-Americans singing blues, work songs, field hollers. There's Latinos. And, and, and so what does Willie call the field work of his family around the house, sharecropping? Uh, he calls the feet Cotton Patch uh, an opera, an opera of voices. Now, now, you can't do that if you don't have a wide vision of music and culture but localize it in an interior way. I think that's one reason Willie's written to us all. Is he capable of dealing with the deep old school cultures that surrounded him, but he's also capable of, you know, playing milk cow blues with Django Reinhardt licks. Incredible. Great. We are getting, we're kind of running out of time, but I want to make sure we get this in. Um, And you've touched on it just now and, and a little bit before as well, but I wanted to come out and ask it and invite you to share your thoughts about, why music is a great way, a great mechanism to understand American culture and particularly Southern culture. Yeah, I, I think, I think you know, first of all, let me say this. I'll, I'll tell a couple of things. One, I always tell people, they ask me, do you play the guitar? I say, I play with the guitar. I enjoy it a little bit. I haven't played as much as I used to. I learned enough to play some blues and country, and but I've kind of set it aside. Um, I didn't feel it was my role back east to dress up like a rural white or black southerner and play blues or country music, as was true among many of my peers. Um, I felt my true self was to observe, comment, and little by little produce radio and music. And, and I think uh, I'll quote... Uh, uh, there was a, a jazz musician from Tippo, uh, Mississippi, uh, who I interviewed a long time ago. John, help me with this. Who's from Tippo who went to New York? Uh, I'm trying to remember his name right now. He passed away. Uh, he did a lot of blues. He's a white guy from, from the South. It'll come to me. But when I first interviewed him at WMMR, and then years later when he played uh, here in uh, New Orleans, um, you know, at a jazz club, but I asked him, you know, about just doing an interview. And the first time I I said that to him, he said, oh, I don't have to play the piano. I said, well, we're not really set up for that. And he said, oh, it'll be chin music. And so I feel like what I'm doing is chin music. That is my job is to create something, you know, entertaining and build that collaboration. And if we're jamming, it's with conversation. That said, the makers of music, in my mind, are creating something that doesn't have to be expressed totally in words, though there's certainly lots of great songs out there. But the songs themselves have poetic quality. And, you know, there's an old, you know, sort of proverb that uh, the, the winners write history and the losers write songs. I don't think that's true. I think reggae music stands up against that. I think a lot of music with protest stands up against that. I think a lot of music that just makes people happy in bad conditions stands up against that. And I feel like music, it reaches your heart and affect in a way that all the analysis and conversation and argumentation um, cannot do. And that doesn't mean we don't talk and discuss it and try and make the conversation musical in its own way, kind of as a metaphor, but it feels to me like music holds a certain magical quality. Now, not every musician can articulate why their music is reaching people or what they themselves value in it, though many can, and it varies just like humans vary. So uh, my feeling was maybe when I started to do Roots and come back to that after doing some live events in New York, trying to get, oh, Wolf Trap, Washington, Fourth of July shows 
during the Clinton administration after the Beach Boys left the mall. You know, we're bringing out the Staples Singers, we're bringing out Gop Perkins, we're bringing out, you know, all kinds of blues people, Tito Puente, lots of Latin music on the National Mall. I think those events live to tape and on radio all made me feel that radio is where I could go rather than spending, you know, I'd written a lot of things. I'd done some books. I did a lot of state guide stuff, a lot of Louisiana stuff, but I just felt radio is, you know, I, I'm, I can play chin music and I could, that would be what I could offer um, to bringing different voices and sounds together and give people that chance to, to talk about themselves on their own terms and, you know, gently nudge them here and there, um, never argue with them. Always try to ha have them feel like they're they're get getting their best sense of self out, uh, including things that they wish had gone differently. But um, I, I think it's I think it's a humanities thing, a humanism thing. Um, it's not turning people into social science categories. It's not turning them into um, political, uh, you know, only political people. Uh, it's not turning them into financial benefits of big stardom versus the woodcarver who believes in the, you know, the supernatural. Um, it just comes back to people's humanity and respecting those differences. And, um, you know, you, you do make choices of who you want to do that. So that is a privilege I have, but I, tr I try to do it in a way that, you know, we can make, make them uh, sound their best and edify the audience, you know, help educate the audience, but also be entertaining. And I think a lot of the greatest things in the, the life of human beings has been, you know, morals and ideas in a community conveyed in song and conveyed in how people, you know, comport themselves and play. And so I just feel like the play zone of, of music is a good place to be for listeners and for me. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours. Give us a rating and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, reported, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads Magazine. James Fox-Smith, Jordan Lahey-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kennan. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor, and produced by Bill Daniel at Wild Child Studios in New Orleans. The audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kinnan. The Detours logo and other graphics were designed by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. So until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.